Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, in this portion of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. And in this prayer, you'll notice that there are a number of things that he brings forward in the prayer. There are a number of contents that he has uh, when he prays for them. Specific things that he's praying for the church. Now, as I said before, this is a good model for us. It's a good thing to read the prayers of Scripture. It is a help for us in our prayer life. Now, when you look through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, what you find is about 350 times in Scripture, the words pray, prayer, praying, or supplication are mentioned. That's a number of times. That's a lot of times. And therefore, you can see the importance of prayer in the life of the church. As a matter of fact, when we think about the Heidelberg Catechism, 116, we know that the Catechism says that prayer is the chief form of thankfulness that we owe to God. A church that doesn't pray is a church that is demonstrating, notice, it's demonstrating unthankfulness. We need to be a thankful people, and as the Catechism says, that is something that is revealed by a prayerful life. When we are a praying people, we are demonstrating that we are a dependent people. You know, we have an allusion to independence in this world. I think it starts young. We want to be independent from our parents. And so we begin thinking that I am living independent. You're not living independent. You're dependent upon everybody else. And you're dependent upon the Lord who gives you life, breath, health, and all things. So we demonstrate a dependency upon the Lord. If he doesn't bless uh, the food that we eat, how will it nourish our body? I'm reminded of David when he was in his last days and he was cold and it said that he could not be warmed. So they brought a handmaiden in to lie next to David for body warmth. You understand the imagery. David's an old man at this time, and he's needed to be warm. And I remember reading that and then listening or hearing a a Puritan commentator say this, that if the Lord doesn't give you warmth, you will not be warmed. Isn't that the case? If the Lord doesn't bless our gifts, they can be of no profit, the Catechism says. So prayer is to be a staple in the life of the church. We are to be, as the church, a praying people. And therefore, we need to be informed, because when we ask anything according to His will, which is His word, then God hears us. So we need to make sure that we're asking in accordance with the teaching of God's word. Now, Scripture reveals a couple of different types of prayer. And let me say this, corporate and private If you do not understand the scriptures correctly, you'll criticize me for praying corporately. As I have been criticized before for praying corporately. As some people say, well, Jesus says you're supposed to pray in your prayer closet. And if you understand the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about my responsibility as an individual. He's not talking about corporate worship. He's talking about my responsibility as an individual believer. I am to go into my prayer closet. I'm not to go out on the street and make a show of myself. I am not, when I give, I'm not to blow a trumpet. I'm not to take vengeance on other people uh, that belongs to the Lord and the governing authorities that He has given. So understanding that you have private prayers and you have 
corporate prayers, but nevertheless, the congregation, the people of God, are to be active in both, both corporately and privately. The book of Acts, you know the four staples that are listed there in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayers. These are necessary in the life of the church. This is how the church grows. You know, it really, it, it chaps my hide how we in the church want to do worship. You cannot do anything, beloved, with regards to the service of our God apart from His Word. I mean, you, you want to see me get excited about something and irritated quickly. Come to me with the nonsense that is contrary to the word because you have a cousin who lives in such and such a city and goes to such and such a church and they do this. And I'm going to ask you this question. Is it in accordance with the teaching of Scripture? If it's not, then get rid of it as the doctrines of men. We love to erect things in the life of the church because it makes me feel good. What ought to make you feel good is walking in step with the Spirit of God. And that is walking in step with Scripture. So, we are to be a people then, with those four staples, to continue in the life of the congregation. Building up, encouraging, stirring one another up to love and good works. This is our calling. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 4, that every member of the body of Christ has been gifted by the Lord and is expected to use those gifts in the midst of the congregation so that it might stir up, encourage, strengthen the remainder of the body of Christ, the rest of the body of Christ. Your gifts are for you to use to strengthen the other members that the church might grow. To the degree that we don't use the gifts God has given to us, in the midst of the congregation, to that degree, the church will not grow. Catechism speaks about this in the Eighth Commandment, that not using the gifts that God has given to you, He regards as theft. Beloved, if you're not using what God has given to you, you're stealing from the Lord. How do you think that that will go over? Do you think there will be no discipline with regards to stealing from God. So, looking at the prayers that the Apostle Paul is praying here for the church at Ephesus, and you know that these are believers that are at Ephesus in Jesus Christ, that we can learn and understand many of the contents, much of the content that we can then incorporate in our life of prayer. It makes your prayers easier to pray when you have a model. Jesus gave that to His disciples. That's what we have as the Lord's Prayer. It was a model prayer that we can incorporate so that we can pray in a manner that is honorable to God. That is edifying to the soul, but is honoring to our God. So, Paul also, we think about uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. He tells us to be a people that prays without ceasing. We're to be constantly in prayer. Prayer is always to be offered up. And you know, it's, it's my routine to have times of prayer, because if you don't, then ordinarily you're not going to get it done. We have schedules that if we don't put things down as routine, that it becomes part of our lifestyle, it doesn't get done. And days go by, and then you start feeling this guilt. I haven't prayed. I haven't prayed in a week. Well, what's wrong with you? 
use the mind that God has given to you and realize that these are aids that you may need simply to be on a strict schedule. And don't deviate from that. Don't let anything interrupt that. Because we need that life. Beloved, you need spiritual growth and spiritual activity in your life more than you need physical food. You understand that? You need to obey the Lord. I don't know what's going to come tomorrow. But I know that if I live tomorrow, I am to obey the Lord. Because man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The kingdom of heaven is not eating and drinking, but joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness. It's contrary to what so many think today as they concentrate and focus on all the physical things and neglect the spiritual aspect of the body. If we could see ourselves in this world, let's say you could have some kind of a hologram that could show an individual walking around in this world, standing up straight and just looking like all of life is within them, and then show their soul, it'd be slumped over and right on the floor. And it looked like a picture of health on the outside, but inside, what's going on on the inside? It's a struggle, isn't there? Because we, truth be told, we give way more to the physical things of life than we do to the, phys- to the uh, spiritual. And that's to our neglect. And then it shows in our prayer life. Shows in our church attendance, being, gathering for worship. What's important in your life? I've been to enough hospital beds and I've seen enough people dying to know that it wasn't how much money they had in the bank or where their next meal is coming from. It is what's going to happen to me when I breathe my last breath. Well, you're going to go into eternity. And you are either going to go to be with the Lord or you are going to hell. And there are no other alternatives. That's it. So don't neglect your life of prayer and your spiritual life. That is most important. I know we don't see that as most important today. Just simple things. I've seen some of you brave storms to go to a volleyball game, but hey, the wind blows, there's an inch of snow outside, I can't come to worship. Something's wrong with that. Saw something, and I've, I've thrown this around at some of you on my texting list. Make church be the excuse for everything else in life. Because it certainly isn't in the life of the church today. Everything else is an excuse for us not to be in worship. Something is wrong. Maybe, maybe the life of prayer as a congregation is missing. Maybe individually, our private prayer lives. Maybe the vitality and the strength spiritually. Maybe that's missing as a congregation. As people that say that we're trusting in the Lord. Paul remedies that. He remedies that in our text this morning. And look at the text. He, he bows his knees to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he prays for is that God would give them according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. So, that's verse 16. Coming into our text, he he has a prayer that he wants the congregation to be strengthened with might in the inner man. Now, the Apostle Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 4. He speaks of this as, as human beings, we have an inner and an outer. The outer man is falling to the earth. 
The outer man is perishing. It's what you see. We're getting older. The body is wearing out. It's wearing down. And you all understand that. You know, just as you get up out of bed and you groan in the morning is a demonstration that the outward man is falling to the earth. I mean, some of you elderly, you know, you don't bend over and pick up things on the floor anymore. Why is that? Because you might not be able to get up. And I'm not joking about that. That's a reality. There's no elasticity that goes on in the tendons and the muscles, the ability to do the things that we once used to do. That's why you got those little gripper things. You reach down and you grab those things so you don't fall over. And you know, those commercials are reality. I've fallen and I can't get up. That happens as we age. But we also have an inner man. What Paul says is the outward man is perishing. It is going back to the dust. Dust you are into dust you shall return. But the inward man is being renewed day by day. How? By the word and the Holy Spirit. So he's speaking about the inner man. And that we would be strengthened as with power and might in this inner man. I need a greater vigor in my spiritual life. I need a greater zeal in my spiritual life. A greater tenacity in my spiritual life. I need more boldness as a believer. That's what Paul is saying. In the inner man. And these are the things that he he mentions. uh, That he's praying for them. Verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now you've got to ask a question right off the bat. Is I thought that they were believers. Well they are believers. And he's speaking in a different text. A different context with regards to the believer. Now, notice that word there, Christ may dwell in your, in, in your hearts through faith. Christ dwells in every believer. But the question of Christ dwelling in us is one of a comfortableness. Alright, so let me say this. There are, there are two Greek words that are used for dwell. All right, one, katoiko, Uh, means to dwell securely, comfortably. The other one, paraoiko, it means to be kind of a stranger, but still dwelling there. Let me use this analogy. Uh, Before Maria became a citizen, she dwelt in the United States. But she didn't dwell as a citizen. There were many things that she couldn't do because she wasn't a citizen. Once she became a citizen, then she began to dwell comfortably. She began to settle down. In kata oiketo, the Greek term there means to settle in a rooted, a grounded way. And that's what it means. Paul is saying that he desires that Christ would dwell in them in a comfortable way. Not just a stranger dwelling in a foreign land, but a comfortableness. Now, How is Christ dwelling in the believer in an uncomfortable fashion? Sin. Sin upsets everything, doesn't it? Not being in the Word of God. Cultivating spiritual things. Nourishing yourself up on the Word of truth. Being faithful in prayer. Being faithful in fellowship. Being faithful to bear witness. Being faithful to worship. Being faithful to sing unto the Lord. Being faithful to live joyfully. 
being faithful to put off the old, to put on the new, to really think about, concentrate, and be active in growing in your Christian life. If you're not doing that, and there are some of you that are not doing that, and you may be believers, and Christ isn't dwelling in you comfortably, you're always stirring up things, and it makes uncomfortableness. It's like living with the in-laws. There's an uncomfortableness there. So this is what Paul is praying for. He's Essentially what he's praying for is spiritual growth, isn't he? Grow up. You have a house and you have kids in your home and younger kids. And the house is like a mess. And it seems like everybody's always on edge because the kids are just tearing everything up and running around and going crazy. But then they get older and things start to settle down and it becomes more comfortable in the home. There's an orderliness that goes on. The kids begin to understand their responsibilities. They, get, they begin, as the parents, incorporating the children in those activities. And then it becomes more calm within the home. Well, that's what Paul is praying for here. Is your life, would you say, beloved? And again, I'm not saying that you're not a believer. I'm asking this question using these two particular Greek terms, kata oiketo and para oiketo. Does Christ dwell in you comfortably? Or is he like a stranger in a foreign land? There's always something that you're stirring it up and you just don't seem to experience the comfortableness of Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. That, I think, what Martin Luther would say is the dark night of the soul. And then you're wondering constantly, am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I a believer? Am I not a believer? Am I forgiven? Am I not forgiven? Back and forth, up and down, over and over again. It's just not a comfortableness in your life. It doesn't have to be that way, beloved. And Paul is praying that it would not be that way for those that are truly believers. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now notice that it's through faith. If you don't have true faith, Christ doesn't dwell in you. Christ dwells in you by true faith. So the Holy Spirit infuses this faith within the soul. This faith believes and trusts the object of faith. The object of Holy Spirit wrought faith is Jesus Christ. Always, only, ever, Jesus. Not me, not some guru, Christ and Him only. He is your hope of glory. He is your all in all. He is your life. He is your breath. He is everything. Christ. He's the good shepherd. He is the door. He is the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the way of salvation. Christ is everything. And so by true faith, Christ dwells in us. Do you know that Christ dwells in you? I mentioned this this morning in the Sunday school. We were looking, I was just mentioning the parable of the ten virgins. Five wise and five foolish. Do you know that you have oil in your lantern? That Christ is in you? Because that's what it is, right? The, the five foolish did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. They weren't born again. Oh, oh they were members, but they weren't born again. 
They knew about the coming of Christ. But they drew near with their, with their mouths, with their lips, but their hearts were far from the Lord. Paul tells us that we are to examine ourselves to know whether or not we are in the faith. Whether or not Christ dwells in you, unless you are disqualified. Do you know that Christ dwells in you? And beloved, the only way that you can know for certain is through the teaching of Scripture. Because it is through the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit testifies, confirms to our spirit that we are the children of God. So, if you are struggling with the assurance of salvation, your struggle is simply that you are not in God's Word. And because you are not in the Word, you're questioning whether God loves you. And when difficult times come, then you will really begin to question the Lord, won't you? Does He really love me? I don't know if God loves me. The Word of God tells us that He loves all those who are in His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Does He live in you, beloved? It's essential to know that. It's absolutely essential to know that Christ dwells in you. If He's not in you, you're disqualified. You may be a church member. You're disqualified for heaven. Heaven is the home of those that are born of the Spirit of God. Those that dwell in the kingdom of righteousness have been born from the Spirit of God, raised up to newness of life, born again. And Jesus said, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born of the Spirit of God. So Paul is praying that they would know. They would understand this. There would be a comfortableness in their life. That human being rooted and grounded in love. Notice that rooted and grounded. We use cement to make a foundation that grounds the building. This building is set upon a foundation. And digging deep, putting the foundation down, keeps the building from tilting from one side to another. You've seen the older homes where foundations weren't laid very well, and they begin to sink. And next thing you know, you can see the house is starting to tilt one side. You've got to lay a good foundation. That foundation is in Jesus Christ. And when it is, there's a rootedness that takes place. What is the rootedness? You know when you plant a tree. That you water it. You nourish it. You put it in a place where the sun can get to it. Maybe you put some kind of a growth things in there to help it. And to, to put that seeding stuff in there that brings and participates growth more. That brings forth more growth. It gets rooted. Corn gets rooted. You know, it's good at times for there to be a little bit of lack of rain so that the roots grow deeper. And let me just use that as an analogy. God brings trials into our lives for that purpose, beloved, that our roots would grow deeper. And Paul is wanting the church to grow deeper in the things of God, to be grounded on the Word and the foundation of Christ, but to grow deeper in the things of God. Because tribulation, trials, difficulty in life are coming. And you must be rooted on the rock, Christ Jesus. Matthew 7 and Jesus is, it can't be any clearer than that. He talks about the wind, the storm, the rain, the flood that came, and the two houses. Now notice, two builders, two houses, and there are two results. There are close proximity, same storms, and one falls, the other stands. The one that stands is on the rock. Now, we often read that and we think only about the analogy, and it's not about the analogy. 
Jesus is teaching a truth here. And what he is saying is that the wind and the rain and the storm and the flood are like the things that hit us in life. He's just simply using metaphors to speak of a reality in this fallen world. And the rock is Christ Jesus. And if your life is not founded on Him, when those elements come against us, cancer, death of a loved one, a child dying, the sicknesses that happen, losing a job, all the difficult struggles, if you are not rooted in Christ, you're going to be blown away. You'll be like the one who just planted his house upon the sand. Lazy. It's not as if he didn't hear. He heard. She didn't want to take the time. You know, I don't have time to read the Word. I'm too busy. Well, you're busy with the wrong things. So Paul is he's wanting this rooted and groundedness, and that's what he's praying for. Beloved, pray for one another. Take the directory, look through, pray for other members of the congregation. Pray that God would cause Christ to dwell in them in a comfortable way. And they experientially, they would experience, they've ever experienced the love of Christ in that way? So Paul essentially is praying for that. Notice what he says, that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. He's wanting us to know in an experiential way God's love for us, the love of Christ for us. That though deserving and worthy of damnation, Christ delivered us from the wrath of God to come. And Christ delivered us by suffering that wrath in our praise. What love is that? Think about the love of Christ for His people. Unworthy as we may be. Rebellious as we truly are. Christ gives His life to redeem a realm of humanity to be His own. What wondrous love is this? That we should be called the children of the living God. That the wrath of God has not fallen upon us. What a wondrous love is this of Christ. What wondrous love is this that takes the evil things of this world and turns to my good. What wondrous love is this that even the worst persecution, the worst trial in this world is causing me to be conformed and fashioned after the image of Jesus Christ. What wondrous love that turns the most difficult things of this world to work together for my salvation. That they must work together for my salvation. What a love is this. What a love is this that Christ would pluck me out of the the mass of humanity to be His own. To wash me with His blood that I might be white as snow. What a wonder of the love of Christ. Paul is praying that the congregation, that the people of God would understand this experientially. Notice what he says here. The the width and the length and the depth and the height. I, I would just say this. The width. God's love would go out, it's, it is so wide, it could go out to the whole of the world. The whole of the world. 
And that means individuals from every tribe, tongue, and nation of the world. God's love comes upon them. That's the width of God's love. The length of God's love. It reaches up to the heavens. How do you put a measure on the love of Christ for his people? Notice this one, the depth of Christ's love. Reaches even to the most defiled sinner. Paul called himself the chief of all sinners. One who despised the things of God and persecuted the church and put them to death. And the love of Christ reached to the depth and brought Paul up from the muck and the mire. Well, the depth of Christ's love. Do you know that love, beloved? A day where you're walking in darkness and Christ shines the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ upon you and pulls you out, transfers you from death and darkness and destruction to life and love and liberty in Jesus Christ. Do you know that love? What a wonder is the love of God. What a wonder the love of Christ. And Jesus it says also the height of, of his love. It's, it's, it is a love that is not comprehended by us. It's incomprehensible. It's attainable. We can sense it. We can feel the love of God. It's the Holy Spirit moves in and through us by the word of God. We can feel it. We can sense it. We can experience it. But we can't comprehend it. We can't fathom that. But Paul is praying for that. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Been in a hospital room. You see somebody that has known the love of Christ. And a peace that surpasses all understanding comes upon them. That's what he's speaking about here. This is the Philippians 4 passage. It's this peace that God gives to the soul of his people, his redeemed. As Christ is settling down into their soul. And they're rooted and grounded in love. And they have this wondrous peace. Of knowing this love that passes knowledge. This is not something that you learn humanly. This is supernatural. This is what God teaches His people. And beloved, He does that as you're in the Word of God. You know, I've, I've preached on... Uh, Matthew 26, dealing with Good Friday. And coming across and getting choked up reading that text, as, even as Isaiah 53. And to know Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as it were, sweating great drops of blood. It means that he was praying so fervently that the capillaries in his forehead burst and blood began to be mingled with the sweat. What was that for? He was praying for his people. He was praying for those that he was going to redeem. He was praying for strength. Because he was going to receive the wrath of God in the place of his people. And that Christ is saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And then on the cross, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Because this cup could not pass. Because there was no other way to redeem a multitude. Do you know that love? One who is worthy and deserving of a thousand deaths, a thousand damnations for every sin that I've committed, and Christ has snatched me from the pit of hell. He's brought me from the muck and the mire, and He's brought me to Himself, along with millions and millions of people 
from tribes, tongues, and nations. Do you know that, beloved? Do you know that love of Christ? We need to know it more. Paul prays for this. Pray for that for one another. It would revolutionize the church to know the love of Christ, to know what Christ has done for us. It would change the way that we view worship, the way that we view praying, the way that we view fellowship with one another, the way that we view serving or washing one another's feet. It would absolutely revolutionize the church. And that's where it begins, isn't it? The love of Jesus Christ. Paul says that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. This is, this is a mind bender right here. Because of the Greek text that Paul uses, he is speaking about being filled with all the fullness of God. I don't, I don't know how that can be, but I know that that is what the text says. That God fills me up to the full. How is that? The finite cannot contain the infinite. How is it? It's throughout all eternity that God is more and more forming His people more and more and more throughout all eternity. That, that's a wonder in itself, isn't it? We'll be perfectly righteous, but we'll be growing as people throughout all eternity. Being filled with the fullness of God. I mean, maybe I should just stop there. I can't even explain it. I, it's like a depth I can't go to. I understand it more in this, and I'll give you this analogy, but I don't think it's that. We can't contain all the fullness of God, but if I went down to the ocean with my glass and I dipped it into the ocean, do I have all the ocean in my glass? No, I do not. But I have all that the ocean is in my glass. And I want to say that about this text, and I can't. I don't know what to say. Being filled with the fullness of God. It, it passes knowledge. But I know when that happens, and as it is happening, it's a glorious thing. There is nothing ever so glorious and wondrous as God filling His people. When you find the filling of the Spirit of God in Scripture, it is always attended by zeal, passion for the things of Christ, boldness, and faithfulness to the things of the Lord. Read it in the book of Acts. You'll find it. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he stood up and he began proclaiming boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't care what men would think or do. He was filled with the Spirit of God. He had the mind of Jesus Christ. And it permeated his whole being. And isn't that what we want? Boy, I want that and I can't even explain it. But yet Paul says it. All the fullness of God. So this week, take this text, beloved, and pray for other members of the congregation that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Settle down in a comfortable way that we would be truly rooted and grounded in Him. That we would begin to apprehend, to perceive the wondrous love of Christ that passes knowledge. That we would know His height and depth and width and length. To know what Christ went through to redeem a multitude which no man can number like the sand by the seashore in number or the stars in the heaven. That Christ suffered the inexpressible anguish, pains and terrors of the wrath of God. In my place condemned He stood that I might then be the righteousness of God in Him. 
What love is this that I should be called the children, the child of the living God? It's beyond understanding. Pray that God would give us a greater understanding of this. A greater apprehension. Greater perception. A greater experience of God filling our hearts with his presence. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus and for us. And this, beloved, is what we ought to pray for one another. Amen. Shall we?